Turn with me then. We're back in Matthew, and here we are in Matthew chapter 22. And in one set, you might say, especially as we hear the last verse that we had read, where we hear about the elect or the chosen, for many are called, but few are chosen. As you start talking about election, you start talking about God's choosing, you might say we're jumping into the deep end of the theological pool, aren't we? This is where many uh, friends of the faith have maybe become contentious with one another. I know that was true in my own life when I first heard about these things, that God might actually be sovereign in salvation. Uh, When I first became a Christian in high school, someone tried to explain to me how God elects or chooses people for salvation. I said, no, 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 they can't be. And then he read for me some of the Bible. (laughs) That was getting in my way. He read for me, for example, Ephesians chapter 1, which says, even as God chose us in him, Before the foundation of the world. Rick, that's before you had anything to think about this or do about this. It was not of you. And when I heard this, I was just so upset at first. And to my shame, I just blurted out, well, I don't worship a God like that. Oh, Rick, 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 Rick. See, I thought I was in control of my salvation. And the notion that... I wasn't in control, but God ultimately was. That was unsettling for me. I mean, I was the one who believed, right? That's how I know I'm saved. That's how I believe the gospel. And if salvation, though, was first and foremost God's plan and God's predetermination, that's a scary thing. Only now I find that doctrine that God elects his people for salvation as some of the greatest assurances and comforts in my Christian walk. Why? Because the farther I go on this Christian walk, the more that statement resonates with me that if I could lose my salvation, I would. Trust me. So I don't trust me. I'm glad to trust someone else, namely our Christ. But you see, salvation, if it's all of God, if it's all of God's choosing and electing and drawing and him even working the faith and repentance... It's completely his work. Thankfully, it's a sure thing because it's all of him. But, yes, that's all very reassuring. That is, if you can be sure that you are one of those chosen. If you are one of the elect. But how can I know that? How can I know that I'm among that number? How can I be sure that God has chosen me? Well, our text this morning speaks to this, and it speaks to it in a way that warns us against false assurance. So, the word for us this morning is this, come. Come at the king's call. That's what we hear in this text. He's calling you. Forget for a moment that that issue of, well, am I chosen, am I not, this kind of thing. You just need to listen spiritually, hear his call to come to him for mercy. Come at the king's call. Because what this does, when you respond to his gospel call, his gospel invitation, you are confirming that he actually chose you. You are demonstrating he is at work in you. You are demonstrating in that way you are one of the elect. So come at the king's call. This is how you confirm his election of you. And furthermore, that's too how you will guard your soul and assure your soul. You come to the king's call. And what we find in this little parable, these 14 verses from Matthew 22, we find really three commands that will help confirm his calling of you if you're his. 
This will confirm his choosing of you that you really are one of the elect. You're one of the chosen. You're one of those that are his people. And so we have this threefold call of the kingdom. And the first call is this. If you're going to confirm his election, confirm his choosing of you, first it's this. Throw off your apathy. You need to throw off your negligence to his word. Throw off your apathy if you would confirm his calling and choosing of you. We see this in the first seven verses. And this is so important as we walk this Christian life. Because the dangers for us are actually subtle ones. Of course, there's the, the big boogeymen out there of sins and temptations. But probably the most dangerous things are related to subtle dangers. Like when we become apathetic. And in that way, we slowly drift away from Jesus. See, sin and unbelief don't usually come like this, as if you're walking spiritually up here and then you just fall off a cliff. It might look like that from the outside, but on the inside, that's typically not how it works. Usually it's something far more gradual. It's not like falling off a cliff. It's going down a stair step by step. Such that, as one pastor said, Anyone who falls into serious sin already taking off fell very far. What do they mean by that? They mean this. You were already taking all kinds of steps away from Christ in compromises until you just had to take that last one. That's how the drift works. That's how apathy works. You're drifting away from Jesus. You drift away from the church. You drift away from his word. You compromise. And then it's over. And the first warning sign that all of us feel from time to time, that's why we have to fight, that's why we have to gather and encourage one another. The first warning sign that the drift has begun is in spiritual apathy, it's spiritual neglect. Your love for Jesus, your interest in spiritual things, it's growing cold. And this word comes this morning to wake you up from the dangers of this, of such a drift, such apathy. List a blow up and full rejection as we see pictured here in this parable. So let's listen in. Let's see this. Let's be strengthened by the word of Christ. Matthew 22, verses 1 and 2. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now, a parable is like an analogy. It's a spiritual story trying to teach one particular truth. And it begins with the setting of a wedding feast, which is as significant, of course, because we see this kind of analogy run throughout Scripture repeatedly. There's oftentimes this connection between a wedding or in a marriage to God's relationship with his people. You see it throughout the Bible. But in this story, as it opens, Jesus is circling in on one particular aspect of of the wedding, and he starts with the wedding invitation. Look at verse 3. And the king sent his servants to call or invite those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Man, that's kind of rude, isn't it? Well, it's more than that. It's not just rude, this is shameful especially in this ancient Near Eastern culture. This was not just disrespectful. This was an affront to the king who invited you. And namely, because the the picture is, see, those folks, they were already invited. They had had kind of a save the date card earlier. That was the initial invitation. 
And now the king has been sending his servants to say, well, I told you it's ready or when it's going to be ready. And now it's ready. So come on in. They said they were going to come, but then they're not going to come now. And it's a disgrace. And again, this is an affront. This is an ancient diss, an insult. Because again, who's inviting you? It's your king. When your king invites you to something, you don't have a lot of options, right? It's like the boss of your company invites you to his son's wedding. Uh, You're going to try and make it, I think, if you want to keep your job or you want to have good standing with your boss. And surely to attend the king's son's wedding, I mean, it's a great honor. Why would you miss that? And again, this is what makes the invitee's response so shocking. So offensive. Again, verse 3, it ends with, but they would not come. More literally, they didn't want to come. They had no wish or desire to come. They were not willing to just show up and have a great feast and meal. They would not grace the wedding with their presence and blessing. And the implication is, the, the, servant is, the servants are repeatedly saying, no, 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 come on. You need to come. And they are just defiantly refusing. There's no way we're going. Again, because they are not just being disrespectful. They're, they're insulting the king and the son. And in light of that, if, if that's the picture, that this is a great affront, then maybe where the story ends makes sense a little bit more. You know, in verse 7. Because eventually what's going to happen, the king's going to send his soldiers to go burn that ungrateful city to the ground. And perhaps a bit more short-tempered king would do that right then, but not this king. Even though he's been rebuffed, he's been shamed by his subjects, he's merciful. And so he sends out more servants, more invitations. And you see, as he does so, he's enticing them. He's graciously enticing them to this great feast. Verse 4, and he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Just come to the wedding feast. I mean, it's a command from the king, come, but he's showing them there's all kinds of incentive to come. It's going to be great. All the preparation has been made. The table's set. The food is hot. It looks delicious. I mean, the king spares no expense. He slaughters the the oxen and the fattened calf. And even as they still affront him and don't come, he he keeps extending his invitation to them. Again, he's not giving them scrawny squirrel meat or leftovers. I mean, this is the juicy fattened calf. This is the filet mignon. This is what you want, and it's reserved for you. I got a name for you. Just come, and your seat is right here. And yet, despite how gracious, repeated, and generous this invitation, they're still not interested. Verse 5. But they paid no attention and went off to his farm and another to his business. Wow, no attention. Not even the king's finest meal and gracious offers could turn their heads to reconsider. They're indifferent. They couldn't care less. They paid no attention, it says, and went off, one to his farm and to another his business. They just went along like nothing ever happened. Like the king's servants never showed up. What are they saying? 
king, your word doesn't matter to me. You don't matter to me. It's like you never showed up. They, they have a total lack of concern for the king's word. And this lack of concern keeps them from a delightful dinner from so many good things. Or to turn it another way, their preoccupation with their daily activities, their daily lives, things like working on a farm or getting to work, their preoccupation with their business or fixing up their house or upgrading their kitchen or tending to their investment portfolio or working on that hobby or their golf game. Those everyday concerns have crowded out a place and concern for God's word, the king's word. What does this mean? They're apathetic. They don't care. They won't listen. So they don't pay attention. They don't care what the king said. They just go on with their daily life like it doesn't matter. And that's bad. <laughs> that's a great shame and affront, but it's not the worst of it. Others rebelled violently, verse 6, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Wow. That seems way worse, doesn't it? And indeed it is. It's the rejection of the king and his son full-blown. You might look at it this way. Apathy is like a passive way to reject the son, to reject his, the, the messenger. But now they've gone away from apathy and neglect. Some of them... They're so displeased with the message, they go and shoot the messenger, right? They don't want to hear a word of it. Their apathy drifted to rebellion, and they won't tolerate being told what to do. And similarly, this king won't tolerate such defiance, at least for so long. And so for this hard-heartedness, they're going to pay the price. And Jesus pictures the father's own response here to such a defiant rejection of his repeated gracious word. Look at verse seven. The king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. That's total desolation. They're gonna get wiped out. This picture is first because this is a message primarily going first to those invited, the Jews, God's chosen people. This anticipates the very destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD where the Romans come in and fully conquer everything, destroying the temple and burning the city to the ground. But that only pictures, and can I say it in a small way, the kind of fiery destruction that God will bring upon all those who reject his son and the king's word. Psalm 2, verse 12, kiss the son. That is common obedience and submission to the Son. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. Everything stands and eternity hangs on what you do with the Son. Will you bow to him and submit and find a refuge? Or will you rebel and find destruction? Because get this. At the moment, at that moment when the king returns and he comes to judge... The folly and emptiness of all of those distractions and all of those other pursuits will become so crystal but regretfully clear. I think that's why he'll talk about it in a moment, weeping and gnashing of teeth out in the outer darkness. How could I let that thing distract me from the most important thing, my own soul? How could I so neglect his word after he so many times graciously invited it and put it before me? How could I keep pushing it away? 
How can I reject such good and gracious invitations to come and sit at his wedding feast for what? For that pleasure? For that sin? For that momentary distraction? For really getting that promotion? For getting finally that respect from the world? Was it worth it? Not if you lose your soul in the process. Not if you let your soul drift away in the process. So this morning, do you feel that drift? It's not strange if you do. But what are you going to do about it? Are you neglecting your soul? Have you been tuning out God's word in your life and in your heart? Have you been withdrawing from fellowship? Where people might engage with you and his word in your life? Or worse, are you, are you hiding to then indulge sin? Just in defiance to, to the king's message. Just daring him to act and judge. He won't do anything. He won't keep his word. Perhaps not yet, but the worst thing that he might do is just to give your soul over to that spiritual deadness that you seem to so long for. And so what are we supposed to do? How do we counter that? We have to be continually stoking the gospel fire in our hearts. We need to be warming our hearts by the truths of the gospel that despite all of our rejections and rebuffs, that this God still came for us. He still sends out invitations. Come and find mercy on my feet because I came for sinners like you. I died for you. I rose for you. This is what Christ has done. You got to go every day and preach that gospel to your heart. That's why we gather as the church. That's why we're involved in fellowship. That we're calling one another, don't forget the goodness of our Christ. Because we come as the church to say, I know what it's like to feel the drift. That's what indwelling sin does. We all got it. And so we're calling one another, brother and sister, don't lose sight of the prize of our great Christ. Don't be preoccupied with all of these other things. Take the king at his word. Lean into the fellowship around his word. Lean into his word that whatever task, event, preoccupation that's trying to undermine a concern for spiritual things, whether it's a farm or whether it's a business, right? It'll never satisfy, to steal from the illustration still, that the the slain oxen and the fattened calf that Christ has prepared for you at his table. Embrace all of his good word. Don't tune it out. Tune out the apathy. Lean into his mercy. Because he beckons you, which is what we see next. Tune out the apathy. Throw it off and come at his invitation. How will you confirm his choosing of you, his election? You have to come when he calls. And he's calling. Verses 8 to 10. And really, I think this next call for the kingdom comes as a particular encouragement to anyone who might be discouraged, say, of their current apathy or the neglect of the king and his word. See that even in light of that, this kind of king, he's still sending out invitations. There's still hope if you'll just listen and come. In other words, even though he's been rebuffed, he's not done inviting. So we see it. After destroying the city... The king continues with plans for the wedding feast, verse 8. So then he said to his servants, 
The wedding feast is ready. But those invited were not worthy. And just to kind of rehearse or sum up, why were those first invited not worthy? How could you summarize it? Because they didn't want this Christ or his kingdom. That's why they weren't worthy. They didn't want it. They were apathetic to it. Even though they'd been invited, they said, no way. Well, even though he was so shamed and rebuffed that even his prized VIP invitees, his people wouldn't come. This king's not undone. He says, we're still going to have a wedding. I'm still going to have a party. It's not much a party if no one's there. Let's get more people in here. Let's send it out far and wide. I need some new guests. Verse 9. So he commands his servants, go therefore to the main roads and invite the wedding to the wedding feast as many as you can find. (laughs) This is a great celebration. And my son is so worthy of honor. Just get anybody you can. We're going to fill this place. But that means don't be too picky. (laughs) If they want to come, let them come in. Don't be too choosy. Just invite whoever you can. And if they want to come, let them come. And that's what they do. Verse 10. Just go get somebody. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. Now notice two things. Notice where they go and who they get and find. First it says about where they went. Those servants went out into the roads. You remember to, to keep using the analogy. The city is destroyed. Right? So they're now going out to the crossroads or the byways. They're going out to the roads and arterials in to, to find whoever they can. Now, in the city lived, presumably, you had all of the very important people, the people with authority, the people with money. So who do you find out in the, on the byways and the highways? You find the commoners. You, you find the poor farmers. To borrow the language from 1 Corinthians 1, you're going to find those who are not wise, those who are not smart or noble or powerful. Who are you going to find? You're going to find the weak. You're going to find the nobodies. You're going to find the overlooked. And when that's your pool of candidates, uh, you got a lot more people to choose from, a lot more people to invite. And so the wedding fills up. So, but as it does then, it's a mixed bag about who comes and sits at the table. Again, look at verse 10. They, these servants gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. So success, right? The wedding hall is filled. Every seat is taken. Everybody's here to celebrate the sun. But only as they make this wide and broad call to anyone who will come, it's attracted the good, the respectable people, but the bad ones too, right? The folks of ill repute. And that pictures well Christ and his ministry, doesn't it? I mean, as we've been following him in the Gospels, what have we seen in the wake of Jesus as he walks all over Israel? But in his wake, a bunch of people who have been overlooked, but now they're healed, a bunch of sinners who have been forgiven, and they're walking in devotion after Jesus. And actually, from one perspective, I think you'd say that many of those following in his wake, most of them are bad. Most of them are from the despised of society. Remember, they reviled Jesus as a friend of tax collectors. That's betrayers and sinners. That's who he fraternizes with. And understand, that wasn't only true for Christ's earthly ministry, but we alluded to it already, quoting from 1 Corinthians. That's true about the church even today, even still. 
That the church, too, is filled with the dregs and sinful of society, or at least it should be. Again, consider the gospel motto. Christ did not come to call the righteous, but who? Sinners. That's who Christ came for. Christ died only for sinners. And so the church, the train of followers marching behind Jesus, indeed will be the bad, the sinful, the broken, the despised, because that's who he came to save. So we don't ex- we're not surprised to see that the bad are here. But even in this parable, what is he talking about with the bad and the good? Who are the good that get gathered up to? And again, keeping with this analogy, the first invitees were the Jews, and they rejected him, so the kingdom has moved to a new people, at least for a time. So who are these good? Well, uh, first of all, no one is truly good. We know that from what we... Jesus made that clear to us in the story of the rich young ruler. He said salvation with man is impossible outside of God and Christ. Everyone needs a savior. But there's some religious Jews, perhaps even confronted by Jesus' teaching about their self-righteousness. There's some religious Jews, earnest Jews, that did come to faith, that did believe. We find some of those too. Of course, some of those are following Jesus now. Of course, some of them are the likes of who buried Jesus. You remember that? Working to do that were Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Those two men served in the Sanhedrin. That's the ruling Jewish authority in Israel. And they come to faith. They were disciples of Christ. I think the likes of, say, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea serve as the, as the good in this analogy. Those who were earnest about God and spiritual things, and once the sun comes, they reject the dependence on themselves and they depend on the sun not their own goodness. So whoever you are, can you hear the invitation the king sends out to you? Because if you can, this might be a sign that you are one of the chosen, one of the called. Can you come and rejoice in this son? Or will you be like those who were invited at first that just didn't seem to care? Because that's the thing. One of the most fundamental indicators of whether you're one of God's chosen and whether you're not is this. Will you believe and respond to the gospel call? In John chapter 10, Jesus puts it like this. John 10, 27. My sheep, Jesus says, they hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. They do. Because we hear him call and so we come. Or Jesus puts it this way earlier in John's gospel. This is John 6, verse 37. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Again, those given to the Son by the Father, through his gracious and eternal choosing, all of those elect, those given, will come to faith, will respond to the gospel. And more than this, having been born again, having faith caused in the heart, Jesus promises, when they come by faith to me, I will never, he says, never cast them out. And so, even in the light of such glorious truths of the salvation, the security of it for the elect, there are not a few Christians out there who struggle with this notion still, but did God choose me? Am I among the elect, one of those given from the Father to Christ? What if I wasn't chosen? 
And those are earnest questions. Those are serious questions. I mean, eternity hangs in the balance in one sense about these questions. But in a way, they're really kind of the wrong questions. Consider this. We're never given a list. There's a list in heaven, the book of the Lamb, but we don't get to look into it. It's attributed to Spurgeon that people have asked him, why do you preach the gospel so widely if only the elect can be saved? And he said something, or is it reported to say something like, well, just tell me who the elect are and I'll preach only to them. That's not how it works. It's not how God designed it. Well, then we've run back to it. Well, how can we know who the elect are? Or very urgently, how can I know whether I'm one of the chosen? Well, consider our text. How will the elect, the chosen, and understand what the scripture means by that, those who are predestinated for salvation, how will the elect distinguish themselves from the non-elect, the non-chosen? What do we see? They come to faith. They believe the gospel. That's what distinguishes them. The elect will be drawn. They will follow Jesus. They will hear the Savior's call. They will show themselves worthy of the kingdom. They will want this Christ and his kingdom. Now, oftentimes, even still, folks will struggle over this notion whether they've been elected for salvation or not. And behind that question in their mind, maybe there lies some guilt. There lies some shame. There lies some temptation in their mind or in their heart that's leading them to doubt. That's not always the case when people struggle with this question, but it's often the case. They fear a true believer, a true elect person, would never do that sin, would never have that thought, would never deal with that struggle. You ever been there? You ever thought like that? Or maybe there's some of you, you've never made a public profession of faith, but you just assume you'll never be worthy enough. You'll never be good enough. You've been too bad. You've been too evil. God could never invite you, accept you into this kingdom. You're just not worthy. And to that, both of those parties, I want to say, well, stop for a second, okay? Look again at this parable. What makes one worthy of the kingdom? They want the kingdom. They want this Christ, and they don't neglect his call. They believe the Son. That's what makes them worthy of it. Again, in contrast to those who were first invited, they didn't want to listen to, they didn't want to listen, they didn't want to believe. But will you believe? Will you come by faith to him? And again, all who come, whether good or bad. So whether we have the religious, the earnestly spiritual, but they still see they need a savior, you're invited to come because Jesus died for sinners like you. Or if you're really bad, You've done so many awful things. You're a deplorable, despicable sinner. And you see your wretchedness, but hear this. He still calls you to come. Find mercy at his feet. You need it, and he came to give it. But will you come to his table? Because if you will, you're starting to prove his calling of you. You're starting to prove his choosing, that you could believe that Christ would save and die even for you. And indeed he does. Despite your past, whether it is good or whether it is bad, you can come if you will hear him and find mercy at his feet. That's a sign God has chosen you. That's a sign he's doing the work in your heart. Believe what he says. He can save sinners, even sinners just like you. 
Third, you want to confirm his choosing of you? Finally, be changed then by this king. You want to confirm he's working in your life? Then be changed by him. Verses 11 to 14. And indeed, this confirms what Jesus has been telling us and teaching all along here as he's rode in to Jerusalem. What has he been doing? He's been hammering the Jews for their hypocrisy, for their empty religion, their fruitless religion, their religion that is in their worship that is in name and form only that hasn't touched the heart. And that's pictured especially at the end of this parable. So let's pick it up. Let's look now at verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests... He saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. So we'd seen before he had focused on the invitations, and now he takes another wrinkle, and he's focusing in particular how the wedding guests are dressed. So the banquet's full, every seat's taken, and as the king strolls through the party, he's looking at all the guests, and one of them is quite conspicuous, sticks right out, because the guy doesn't have the right clothes on. He finds the certain single guy who has no wedding garment. In that ancient culture especially, but even true today, you're expected to kind of dress up for a wedding. You know, it may not be tuxes and suits anymore, but you still shouldn't come in your work overalls. You shouldn't come in your dirty work clothes or like you've just been working in the yard. And that was especially true in this ancient context. Because remember in the story, these guys have been invited as they were on the road. They were probably coming in from a work day. But it was expected, it was known by everybody that you'd go home first and clean up and then show up at the wedding. Or in some cases, in ancient times, the king himself would provide the clothes you need to come into the wedding. Whatever the case, what that means is to find someone not appropriately dressed would be, one, very surprising, and then, two, inexcusable. Such that when the king queries him, verse 12, and he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? Note the guy's response. He doesn't say anything. He's speechless. Why? He knows he has no excuse. Everybody knows you're supposed to come to the wedding appropriately dressed. And that's why he's silent. He has no defense. Because really, if everybody in the culture knows how you're supposed to dress for the wedding, when you come not dressed correctly, that's not a mistake. That's not showing up at a a wedding party and you misread the, the invitation. Everybody knows how you're supposed to dress. And when you have dressed down, you're dressing down the one who invited you. You're affronting the one who has called you in. It is seen as an intentional affront, a loud disrespect to the king and this son. And if that's how it's seen, again, maybe that makes good sense of how the king deals with it because it seems kind of severe, perhaps. Verse 13, then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Whoa. All because he didn't have a tie and sports coat on. No, no. It's far more than about having the wrong clothes. He insulted the king. He dressed him down and dishonored him. And as as harsh as this punishment may sound, it fits with the repeated threat of those who neglect and insult and reject this son and his kingdom, right? 
that they will be, as we've read through the gospel, they will be bound and given over to the fiery furnace. They will be weeping and gnashing their teeth and mourn forever. It becomes clear then what's going on, that though this guy had tried to come and attend the wedding, crying out, Lord, Lord, he even seemed to respond to the invitation, but he never truly was part of his kingdom because he didn't have the wedding clothes on. So now we come to the text's million, billion dollar question, or trillion, that's where we deal now, right, with our government. What are these wedding clothes? Because I think you really want to know, because you don't want to show up without them, apparently. Now, some have suggested that this wedding garment might be the righteousness of Christ. This gift that is given by the king to his subjects, that they're clothed and protected by Christ's righteous life. Such that when Christ take your, takes your sin, he gives you his righteousness, like we read in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And then you are clothed and dressed in that pure righteousness. The Father sees you, but he sees the Son. That's a glorious truth. That's one we sing about in one of my favorite hymns. And when he shall come with trumpet sounds, oh, may I then in Christ be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. And that's possible, that that's what Christ meant. And whether possible or not, it's certainly true. That's a gospel truth we stand on. But I suspect Jesus had something else in mind. And there's two reasons I think so. One, given the context, we'll touch on that in a moment. But given, secondly, this close parallel we find at the end of the Bible. Turn with me just for a moment to Revelation chapter 19. The last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 19. We find a close parable to this, or close parallel to this parable we've been reading about. Except what we're having Matthew is a parable. It's an analogy. As you fast forward, granted it's symbolic language, but as you fast forward to Revelation 19, we're dealing with the realities here. We're going to fast forward to the actual wedding feast of the Son and the Lamb. And let's see what we find. So in Revelation chapter 19, we hear Jesus is returning. And we hear then calls for rejoicing. The wedding is here. Verse 7 of Revelation 19 says this. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. So here it is. This is the wedding feast. Jesus is being joined to the people of God forever. And we see in verse 7 that the bride has made herself ready. Well, how did she prepare herself for this day? Verse 8, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And then John explains what that figure points to. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Her adornment was the righteous deeds, the righteous changed lives of the saints, of those who believe in Jesus. To take it then back to Matthew's gospel, it fits very well, doesn't it, with all the context we've been seeing. What's Jesus been doing? He's been condemning empty religion, a religion that's in word only and there's no change. That, for, that kingdom is taken from those who will not bear its fruit. That it's all just talk. Because get this, to put it in our own world, you can tick all of the right theological boxes. I'm reformed. I'm a five-point Calvinist. I'm a seven-point Calvinist. I'm a Baptist. I'm a dispensational premillennial pre-tribulationist. Congratulations. But has Christ, has the gospel 
changed you. That's how you'll know if you're chosen or if you're in his kingdom. Because get this. Here's the punchline. It's where the parable ends. Look at verse 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. In other words, be warned. Don't be deceived. Don't be, don't be like this guy who got kicked out and cast out. Don't be duped like the religious leaders and worshipers at the temple. It's not enough to be around spiritual truths and spiritual things. It's not enough to be invited in. It's not enough to come and attend church to merely hear the gospel call. To merely hear the call makes you only good enough to be the foolish man at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember that? He had taught this whole sermon, and then Jesus comes to the end. Well, I'm going to make one more illustration. we got two kinds of builders. we got a guy who's wise and builds on the rock, and we got a guy who's a fool and builds on sand. And you know what distinguishes them? They're both builders. They both, as he draws out the analogy, hear the word. So what distinguishes the wise from the fool? Because they both hear the word, but what's the difference? One does the word of Christ they hear. The gospel has to come into your heart and change you from the inside out. That's the difference. That's the mark of God's people. Such that if it hasn't changed you, then you can have no assurance you actually believed it. James talks about this. If Christ hasn't changed you, then I can't but conclude that he's never come into you. Because trust me, he doesn't come into you and just leave things the way they are. If he hasn't changed your life, you can have no assurance that you've been chosen by him. And with that punchline in verse 14, the implication appears to be this. There are many who are around the church, who are around the gospel, who are around spiritual things, who hear the kingdom teaching and gospel invitation, but they're not chosen because they never really believe they never are changed. Let them not be you. Do not in your pride presume, I'm just fine the way I am. No, that, that's not who Jesus came to save. He didn't come to save people who were fine the way they are. He came to save people who saw that they were desperate and sinful and they needed a redeemer. And by that then, they repent and are changed. That's what the Spirit does in their heart. That's what the chosen do. They're changed. They're not perfect. We've talked about that too the last few weeks. But they are changed. They're different. So by way of application, then, as a takeaway, what does this mean? It's kind of that overarching thing we've been talking about over the last few weeks. It, it ties into what we started with about throwing off apathy. We need to always be striving and leaning in to grow in Christ. We don't let up. That's the application. You want to prove your calling? Then strive and follow hard after Jesus and let nothing get in your way. We see this play out, too, if I can give a final call from the Bible here. In 2 Peter, the apostle there urges Christians to ever strive and grow in the Christian life, to always be moving forward in maturity. He writes this, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. He says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. So you got faith, and you're going to keep adding to it. That's where the Christian life goes. You keep growing. You add to your faith virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection, add love on top of that. And if these qualities are yours, and if they're increasing, it will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
In other words, if you keep striving, if you keep seeking to grow and pursuing Jesus, you keep seeking to put off sin and learn more about Christ and live like him, you'll never be unfruitful. But furthermore, if you seek that kind of growth, Peter assures us of this. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. That's how he holds us. Your abiding growth in Christ and holiness will confirm all the more to yourself and to others in the church as we see you that your faith is real, that it's genuine, that Christ is alive and working in your soul, that you've been chosen. So put away sin. Be strategic about it this week. Be serious about it. I'm going to try and grow just this week. What's a sin this week? You think about where you're going to be. What's a sin you can put off? Or what's an obedience that you can prayerfully put on? Doing so will so confirm his calling of you. Because hear this. If he calls you and invites you to salvation, he calls you to obedience. Be changed. And let's not stop. Let's pray for his help in this. Let's pray together. Indeed, oh God, we are humbled And we confess once again that we are sinful. We confess that we have been lax. We've been apathetic. We've let off the gas. We've entertained sins. We've let ourselves be distracted. We've tuned out your word. And so we pray that you forgive us, that you chose mercy. We're thankful that you do extend invitation after invitation. And we thank you for your spirit that works in our heart and draws us. We see that we can never stand alone. We can only stand on Christ. And yet, as those forgiven, uh, as those who have your spirit and your word, may we not waste these talents that you've entrusted to us. May we leverage them, that we would be people zealous for good works, holy and separated and in devotion to you. Again, because this is what you're worthy of, our Christ. We love you so. You're so good to us. Uh, May our lives reflect that in the way we live. Do that in our midst by your spirit, we pray. Amen.